it's not an easy job, but the stuff you learn down there is what prepares you for all the other stuff. Look, if it was easy, the FBI would be doing it, right? Mark? <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, I had no idea. I had no idea about the the ins and outs of the Department of State. It was just something that I. It was just like some some abstract that I heard about on TV. But no, I, I have an appreciation for what they actually do. Uh, now that I've uh, worked hand in hand with those folks, not that we're always in agreement with them, but exactly. they don't have without a tough a, without job. a doubt, without a doubt, that diplomacy is important. Well, yeah. let's. We were going to talk about this, but since we're here, let's talk about this because you talked about there's a couple things you want to talk about, but let's not do it after. Let's talk about the work you did on the African continent because that was one of the things you wanted to talk about, right? Some of the work you did there. Let, let's talk about that real quick before we talk about Operation Relentless. Right. Okay. So obviously, I was um, I, I retired as a senior executive and regional director for the Africa continent, where I supervised ten offices. Uh, I was first based in uh, Rabat, Morocco. And then I moved uh, my regional office to Cape Town, South Africa, for my last two years um, because uh, my uh, what was happening in, in Morocco wasn't resonating uh, with the U.S. Embassy there because under the State Department, Morocco comes under the umbrella of the Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs. And when I moved to South Africa, my office came under the Bureau of African Affairs for the State Department. So, And also, uh, South Africa is an English-speaking country, and Morocco is both French and Arabic speaking, and therefore it was an easy adjustment for my staff. And uh, and most of my offices in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, uh, most of my offices were in Sub-Saharan Africa and not North Africa. And so, obviously, you know, working on the continent was a wonderful experience. But uh, I'll talk about it. You want me to talk about a couple of cases specifically? No, so? let's. I just wanted to set context. You know, let's let's do that because let's let's talk about you going to Thailand because what we want to do is is spend some time on talking about this stuff because it was real interesting. I had no idea. I mean, I know that you have to do a lot of work, but I had no idea when we were going to talk to you that you'd been that extensively involved. So um, now, Thailand, what country was that for you? Was that your third or fourth country? That, that, was, that was my third assignment, and I was actually selected as a, a non-senior executive uh, uh, regional director. When I went there, so I used to, I used, to, I was the executive assistant for the chief of operation, and he sent me over there. At that particular time, they didn't have the position on the books for a senior executive, so they gave me initially. They gave me the position of regional director at at a, at, a, at, a, at a lower grade, and so they paid me less, but they made me. That's do what I'm about to say. You got the rank, <laughs> yeah. not the pay. Right, yeah. right. And so later on, they bumped the position up, and then they had a senior executive come over there. But at the time in which we did, then I did the work on Operation Relentless, uh, that person was out of the country. And, and so I kind of handled that thing. And, and I handled that thing with the, the arms traffic we're going to talk about based on my previous experience from my other posts, from my other assignments. But well, uh, let's, let's talk about that, because when we had talked with Zach, obviously, there's the Special Operations Division and DEA, and they'll get some you know unique assignments. But uh, they they tried taking Victor Boot down in a couple different countries. I think one of them was Romania or uh, yeah, and they th- th- didn't work out. So Thailand became like the place to go. When was the first you learned? Because it's interesting you say that too. Because one of the places Victor Boot sold a lot of arms and ammunition was the African continent. I mean, he put tons of ammo and weapons out there. When when was your first? When did you first become aware of Victor Boot? Was it just this operation, or did you know about him before? I did not know about him before. I had some knowledge of the uh, movie Lord of War with Nicolas Cage, which was based on him. But I Harry had, Orloff, yeah, we asked. Yeah. <laughs> I, had, I, had, Cage, oh I, I had no no uh, no knowledge of him at all. And then, like for some of your, your uh, listeners who might have not heard Zach's presentation, it's important that we give some kind of context, if, if you agree, that he was arg- arguably the number one arms trafficker in the world when we arrested him in 2008. He was known as the Merchant of Death. And uh, he According been, to the UN, his arms and ammunition were responsible for the deaths of six million people on the right, African continent. Absolutely. He had been sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury Department as an international arms dealer and war profiteer. He had been sanctioned by the United States, the United Nations Security Council for violating U.S. embargoes in Angola and Sierra Leone. He was providing weapons to the Taliban. And, and conflict zones throughout the world, even that end up with child soldiers in Africa. So you name it as far as uh, a significant illegal arms 
trafficking is concerned. He was he was kind of behind it. And and I can give that if you want me to give that backstory now, what actually took place after we got notified that uh, the DEA Special Operations Division wanted our assistance in trying to capture this guy. And just for our listeners that haven't heard Zach's story, it's episode 19 that came out in October 21. So go back and listen and you'll get the, the whole story about and we actually group. And we actually did a follow-up with Zach. It was on Patreon. I think we released it, though, on our uh, regular podcast. But we did after uh, Victor Boot was traded for Brittany Griner. We did a follow-up to that because uh, he was actually asked to be on the news and talk about that. But, yeah, let's so – because, you know, the reason you go into this, you don't know what's going on. You're in Thailand for – you don't know about Victor Boot, I should say. How long are you in Thailand before this – cable or something comes out that says, hey, we need your help. About a year and a half and maybe two years at that particular time. Yeah. So you uh, had the chance to yeah. build up a lot of relationships. With the ties. Yeah, yeah. with the tie. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's let's talk about how this goes down. I mean, because this is going to be similar to any other operation. Somebody's coming into your country. But how did you first, you know, what was the context? What was the setup for this to where you started getting involved? And how much lead time did you have before this thing was going to go down? Well, it, it, it was a, it was a few weeks, and but it didn't take long to go down. It, when it went when it finally went down, it went down quickly. But some of the backstory of it is that people don't realize. Um, I was assigned to Bangkok, uh, and now at that particular time, I was at the I was assistant. Uh, I was the acting regional director, and at post at the mission there, we had a Department of Justice attorney, who we called a DOJ legal advisor. And in Thailand, this DOJ legal advisor was responsible for coordinating high-profile investigations such as extraditions that were in the United States government's best interest. Well, just prior to this, this is important, just prior to this investigation on Victor Boot, this legal advisor had lost an extradition ruling in the Thai courts on an Iranian named Jamshid Kasemi on a U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement investigation and Gassemi was returned, he was able to return to Iran. He had been indicted in the United States for weapon, weapons trafficking and money laundering. And see, I don't I see. So this is the, the part. It that, doesn't sound so good yet. For, right. It doesn't sound right. Good with Victor now. So when you have SOD, uh, the Spe- DEA Special Operations Division calling us, it's like they don't have this context. Right. Mm-hmm. They just saying, make it happen. Hey, but rewind for a second before you get to that. Why did they lose the uh, why did they lose the extradition case? What was it about the Thai courts that made it so tough to get this guy's an Iranian? Iran is a state sponsor of terror. Right. What was it? Why was it so tough for the courts to rule on that? I didn't have I don't have uh, 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 in, in, in debt in debt knowledge on what specific took place in this investigation. I do know this based on my experience. A lot of times there are other factors that ain't public that come into play with these cases. There might be corruption. There might be all type of issues. I I have experienced, uh, even with Victor Boot, the pressure that's put on a country like Thailand from a government is incredible. So you never know what things are going, what, what, what's what's going on behind the scenes between uh, a relationship with country A and country B. So I can't give you the specific reasons why they lost that specific uh, uh, request to, for that person to be extradited to the United States. But I do know one thing. Uh, that our legal advisor, the DOJ legal advisor, who's a, who's, a, who's who's an attorney, he didn't want to have nothing to do with a case like this ever again. And here we were. <laughs> here we are. Guess what I got for you? Another case. Right. <laughs> right. So I. Uh, so what I did, um, and he and he had made it known to the United States ambassador, and his name was Eric John at the time, and to the deputy chief of mission, Jim and Twistle, he made it known. To, he, to them, he said, the ties do not, the Thai government does not want to do another case like this. Once again, you never know what's going on behind the scenes as far as the pressure that's exerted by country A over country B. But so he was like, before we even knew about Victor Boot, he was trying to lay the groundwork with the United States ambassador and the deputy chief of mission. We don't want to do another case like this, right? And so that's why I, I wanted to explain to you guys some of the intricacies of what took place that these other guys don't appreciate and they just think when when we come, we come. We, we, you you just supposed to make it happen for DEA. And so he had told Ambassador that the ties didn't didn't want to do another case like this. And so it was really himself who didn't want to be put in that position again. So uh, that was in the back of my mind when SOD, when the Special Operations Division came calling. Uh, 
And they, through their informants and an unwitting boot, had agreed, obviously, to come to Thailand to meet with members of the FARC or the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, a narco-terrorist organization. And fortunately, these FARC members were actually two DEA informants. And knowing that the legal advisor was now gun-shy about a case like this, no pun intended, me and the uh, supervisor agent, supervisory agent that worked for me, we went and met with a gentleman named Charchai, who was the director of the Thailand Office of uh, Narcotics Control Board. And he carried a lot of juice within Thailand, a lot of juice. And so we went to him first. And then we also knew we needed approval for the enforcement element of this operation. And we went to a, a General Pongpot, who was the commander of the Crime Suppression D- Division of the Royal Thai Police. So we gave them both briefings of this, and they both concurred to assist us with this investigations and and um, and anticipated operation. So uh, General Pongpot just requested that I send him something in writing. So I sent them a, a letter in, in writing, and I then prepared a long, long memo, a really long memo. For the sign approval of the U.S. ambassador and the deputy chief of mission, and I attached all the supporting document uh, documentation, including the Treasury uh, designation and and the UN sanctions, and 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 then I, I when I briefed the ambassador, uh, I told him that I had I already had Thai government approval. And he told me just to coordinate with the DOJ legal advisor, and and then he signed the memo. So I kind of I, I kind of cleaned things up before it actually, you know, before it actually uh, happened and stuff. Well, so. you came in top down on that advisor because once the ambassador signs off on it, exactly says, with that. As as we've talked about in other episodes, the ambassador is the representative, is the president, right. you know, in that country, right? And so th- those are those are the kind of things that these guys, when they come and request us to do something, they don't know what the, <laughs> all the crap we got to go through to make something like this happen. But I kind of just, like I said, is the fact that I had previous foreign experience. It helped me as far as my decision making to try to, uh, you know, to make something like this happen. You know. Well, and, and here's the that's one of the beautiful things about DEA is when our guys go overseas, you get off your butt, you go out there and you make the contacts, you develop these relationships. This is not something you do by just going over and, and meeting a guy once, you know, once a month, once a quarter or whatever. You know, you got to go out to lunch with him. You got to meet his family, maybe go out to dinner. You got to wine and dine these guys a little bit. But then and, and that's how they build up respect for you. So that when you do get these, remember we used to call these uh, uh, drive-by uh, taskings that headquarters right. would come out with right. under Karen Tandy specifically. Yeah, baby, and 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 uh, you know that's why SOD was able to call Andre over here with all his experience and especially his contacts, being able to make things happen. And that's one of the things that makes DEA so damn successful. And that's that's just the honest to God's truth. And unfortunately, sometimes we have uh, DEA leadership who haven't been assigned overseas. They don't appreciate what their own workforce are capable of doing. There's there's a lack of appreciation for what we do in in that arena. For instance, we had a a DEA and the predecessor agencies had a 40-year relationship with the Thai, with the Royal Thai Police, going back 40 years, the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. Uh, and so that's the way we were able to, to get things done. And uh, and and at that particular time, when we uh, when Boot was taken into custody, I don't know if Zach talked about this. There was no provisional arrest warrant in place with the Thai government when we arrested him in the hotel room. And he was negotiating with our informants to provide 100 manned portable air defense systems and other material support to shoot down U.S. aircraft and kill Americans in Colombia. But because we had that relationship, that the, uh, they allowed two of our agents to swear to affidavits in Thai court to be used to keep boot in custody until the provisional arrest warrants could be executed. And that took a few days. So allowing foreign agents to swear to an affidavit in a foreign court is like kind of unheard of, but it just goes to show you the cooperation we have with the Thai government. Absolutely. Now, 
so if, if you're looking, putting on a skill, because obviously it's all about relationships. Like I used to tell my kids, it's not what you know, it's who you know, and it's not who you know, it's who I know. Right. And so the relationships are key to this. But how much did those relationships, had it not been for those relationships, was Victor Boot a sufficiently bad enough guy that it would have tipped the scales? Or did you need did you need the power of those relationships to make sure the scale tipped to where you could get those provisional arrest warrants and extradite them? You had to have those relationships because the pressure that the Russian government put on the Thai <laughs> the Thai government is incredible. Incredible. And so, once again, that's why I said I don't know specifically what happened in the case regarding the uh, Iranian arms trafficker that just preceded this investigation. And so, it's just, it, it, you know, ultimately, I guess the ties probably made the decision that ultimately Victor Boot was coming to, in, into their country to facilitate a crime. I would like to think that because he was coming in their country to facilitate a crime, that they decided that he should be extradited to the United States versus just a versus a bad guy who just happened to be in their country that committed right. no crime other than just being a fugitive. Right, right, right. But it was a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure put on the Thai government by the. So they're in between. The Thais are like, "What do we do here? We want to maintain our, our relationship with the United States, and we want to re- maintain our relationship with the the, the uh, with the Russian government. What do we do here?" And I actually had left the country uh, uh my 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 tour was over i left the country and i was being i was kind of skeptical that it was ever going to happen because we were finding out all kind of things in the back channels about uh, potential bribery and everything else that i can't even talk about here that uh we became aware of and i i got to the point i thought he was never going to be extradited to the united well, it was states like what a year year and a half yeah. i don't remember this was uh I, I we arrested him early 2008 i left in december 2009 so it was it was about two years yeah it was like two years before he was sent back uh you know and uh and he was convicted and received you know a 25 year sentence and and of course recently he was uh you know uh uh exchanged with Brittany griner um and one of the it's interesting. I want to play off that for a second. I do a lot of presentations. I talk about Russian tactics and doctrine and war and cyberspace and stuff. But I ask them, I say, and I ask a show of hands. I said, guys, not a political answer. It's just simply I want you to demonstrate what Russia's been doing for hundreds of years. How many of you know the name Brittany Griner? Almost every hand goes up. I said, how many of you know the name Victor Boot? Hardly anybody does. I said, you know what? They're so good at low intensity conflict. They're so good at operating in the gray spaces, you know, outside of policy that doesn't invoke a full response. I said, that's what Victor Boot did for a living until he opened his mouth on a TV show. But he was so far below the radar. He's supplying guns and arms, but he's not a name on the news. Absolutely. Nobody knows who this guy was. Right, right. And if it wasn't for the, the you know a movie you know and 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 you know and a book or something like people you know still wouldn't have context for what this guy represented and all of the bad stuff that he was doing around the world and unfortunately he only got a twenty five year jail sentence and part of that was because the the judge from what I was told uh, the judge thought that uh, we might have been on the border of kind of entrapping him. Yeah, uh, we it, went through it, that with Zach. He was not happy with what the. It was a female judge. I, I've tried to can't remember her name, but um, she was not happy with DEA over right, that. Yeah, right. So he only he didn't get a life sentence. So he only got a twenty five year sentence. So even when when Griner was released, you know, he was only going to do a few more years. He was only going to do a few more years. Yeah. Oh well. Uh-oh. Anyway, okay. <laughs> but but I, but I think the point we're making here too, if you if you if you. Uh, you know, piggyback off of Zach's episode, you realize, and, and um, I didn't know enough about it then. I wish I had, because we would have gone into more detail, but, you know, we were talking just about the SOD operation. But like you say, no matter even where you would go or other places, even like when the feds would come in to work with state and local law enforcement, you still got to have relationships in place. You've got to know the lay of the land. You've got to know, because uh, you you brought up a very good point. I realized when I was a state trooper and a detective, we did stuff with ATF, FBI, everything. The people who had the best information were the people on the ground. Who had the best information? You folks in Thailand. You knew you had the relationships. You knew how it worked. And that's that's interesting. Now, did the guy from DOJ think that he got uh, played on this or that you went above <laughs> his head? All I do know that he was uh, incredibly stressed out that he had to handle this case. <laughs> 
because he had to, you know, those hearings every other month or so. Yeah. He had to go and he had to be, you know, walk hand in hand with the, this Thai counterpart, the Thai prosecutors, and, uh, and try to make this thing happen. And, and I guess he probably didn't want his resume to lose to a, a second arms trafficking case <laughs> on his resume, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I bet. Yeah, I bet he. I, I bet he. But you were on his Christmas card list, right? <laughs> he, I mean, he went to work for Facebook. He went to get a huge job for Facebook. Ironically, oh, talk about being under stress. Yeah. Okay. Hey, well, let's let's talk about because that was interesting. But there's another case we want to get to, and you called it Project Synergy. But right. But but to get to that, you left Thailand. Where did you go after Thailand, and what was the context? Uh, you know, before we get into Project Synergy, where were you at when this project came about? I, I was I was reassigned. I finished my tour, and I was reassigned back at the DEA Special Operations Division. It was my second tour working at the DEA. Were you there with Derek Maltz? Oh yeah, Derek. Yeah. Oh yeah. Eric, Murph, Murph, come here, Murph. I got something for you, Murph. <laughs> no, that's, that's oh, absolutely. He never called me that. He called me you effing and hillbilly. Billy. <laughs> we we all went out to lunch with Derek one time too. We've had him on the show too. And let me tell you, you want to see under the definition of passion in the dictionary, it's got his picture there. What he's doing with fentanyl and everything. But um, so let's let's talk about Project Synergy. Then you're back at headquarters now, so you're the big cheese, right? I mean, you get to oversee things at SOD. How does this come about and what is it? So at the time, I was an assistant special agent in charge at SOD, uh, heading up the pharmaceutical, chemical, and internet investigation section. And at SOD, one of our, uh, at the Special Operations Division, one of our roles is to deconflict simultaneous investigations, use special tools to exploit those investigations, and to provide leads and, and and coordinate seemingly disparate investigations of the field to coordinate with the field these cases. So at that particular time, we we had a, a lot of uh, different cases, uh, and and sometimes we called them operations uh, that my my staff my staff coordinators were supporting. And what we found that there was a lot of young adults or teenagers who were having uh, adverse reactions to synthetic drugs uh, to a synthetic drug called. K2 or spice, also known as a uh, fake weed, and and an, another this was an, an another synthetic drug that was being abused, just not as as in as much volume was uh, was the cathinones, also called bath salts, even though it didn't have anything to do with anyone taking a bath. Uh, but some of the people were going into psychosis, so we found uh, these people ended up in their uh, hospital emergency room. And what we found was these drugs was, was legal and being sold in convenience stores for about $20 in little Mylar packs with cartoon characters on the outside so that these drugs would be attractive to young people. See, I, I want to stop you right there. See, that, that when, when they were doing stuff with fentanyl or some of the other stuff, it's this marketing to kids that just pisses me off. I mean, how this is allowed to go – I mean – I know we'll we'll get into that, but that you just kind of hit a hot button because I look at all of the stuff where it's designed to appeal to these kids, and it's just like, man, we don't need to worry about losing a war or anything. We're just gonna, with the impact that it's happening to our kids and that's growing up, that's all it's gonna take. So, long story short, we we're seeing not only do we have these uh, young folks going to an emergency room, we're starting to see a lot of a lot of these drugs were being sold in convenience stores operated by Middle Easterners with different ethnicities. It was Lebanese, Syri Syrians, Pakistanis, Yemenis, to name a few, and we started to see a, a pattern of tens of millions of dollars going to these places to countries like Yemen, where there is no significant infrastructure, right? And it was the belief that some of the proceeds were being used to fund extremism. And we, we actually had enough information to know that it was true, including the words of those who we later arrested. And we had one case in Alabama in which the great nephews of a terrorist who was implicated in an attack on the USS Cole uh, was sending uh, they, the 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 great nephews were sending millions of dollars to this person in Yemen. And That's so, Al Shabbat, isn't it? Now this is Sheikh Zendani, and Sheikh Zend. Uh, so this is a, a, a he was one of the spiritual advisors of uh, Osama bin Laden. So he, he's considered uh, possibly responsible for the bombing of the USS Cole. And uh, on October 12th of 2000, in which 17 U.S. servicemen were killed while refueling uh, at the Yemeni port of uh, Aden. And um, uh, so, in addition, we were seeing, and, and this thing was very nefarious. So, we're also seeing one kilogram 
express mail packages coming into the United States from China with this white powder. This was this K2 white powder. And that white powder would be liquefied in acetone and then sprayed on about 15 to 17 kilograms of a benign organic leaf. And that leaf was coming into the country from Mexico and Europe uh, by the ton. And the sheer volume that we were dealing with uh, with, those, with these drugs was incredible. And the amounts of money that were generated was huge. So based on uh, one kilo of this powder from China, you could generate $300,000 conservatively. $300,000 conservatively. How much would a kilo like that go for? Well, about fifteen hundred dollars. So fifteen hundred dollars wow. becomes three hundred. There's your next investment. Forget cryptocurrency. Right. Yeah. What a return on investment. Right. And if I made a mistake, I said Al Shabab is actually Somalia, not Yemen. But yeah. Right. Right. You know, and and here we go. You know, we're this sounds like modern day. Let's see. Oh, the Chinese are providing stuff to the Mexicans, and they're in cohorts. To, co, you know, co. They're they're in compliance with each other to kill Americans. Damn! I thought this just started. Uh, where? How did this happen? The word you were thinking of, Murph, was cahoots. They're in cahoots. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> so, and and because yeah. of the hospitalizations, we had to uh, emergency schedule these drugs as illegal. And a ch- okay, and the Chinese chemist producing the powder would tweak the molecular structure so that the product was no longer illegal. Because it, in order to have a legal drug, you have to have the product, you have to test it, and it has to go through an administrative process. And the Chinese scheme, this was the predecessor to fentanyl. You got to remember, this was the fentanyl, as they would manipulate those chemicals also in order to skirt, uh, skirt to classifying those drugs as illegal. Then that stuff started. So this was right before fentanyl, because uh, fentanyl is a synthetic drug also. So, but they'd already laid the groundwork for distribution, how they were going to do everything. Yes. So by the time fentanyl came up through, they already had everything down pat. Right, right. So eventually we had to use the Federal Analog Act to classify all of the like family of drugs as illegal. In order to use that act, the drug has to have a similar chemical makeup and have to have the same or similar pharmacological effect uh, on the user. We end up briefing the deputy attorney general, members of Congress, national security staff on this threat. And then we ultimately we had two huge takedowns of $145 million in cash and assets, mostly cash, 45 tons of synthetic packages of spice. 840 kilograms of cathinones of the bath salt. We made 429 arrests and we did 600, 602 search warrants across the country. And that's just in the U.S.? That was in the U.S. It was a, a small amounts were uh, taken off in Australia. But for the most part, this was the United States. The, the, so what was going on back then, people had no clue. But this, oh this preceded fentanyl. Hold on a second, because you mentioned something we were going to talk about it, because you said Project Synergy was a national security issue. And so let's follow that thread for a minute, because anytime you've got millions of dollars going to a country where there's violence going on, you've got uh, terrorist groups or anything like that. What was the national security aspect about this that you can talk about? Well, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to be careful in what I say. And it's just like, well, you have the Middle Easterners who are operating the convenience stores. And based on what we know, what they were doing was intentional. This wasn't an accident where they, where they were selling this, this, these, these drugs. In addition, and you have the tens of millions of dollars that were going to the Middle East to fund extremism. And so we had, we had money at the, going into Syrian, like it's the Syria, like you wouldn't believe. And it was tens of millions of dollars. And it was not going for any uh, uh, any nice purpose. It's, it's going for weapons and, and and things such as that. And so that that's what we found. And that's why we, when we had the great uh, great nephews in Alabama of a person who's implicated in the bombing of the USS Cole, these was the kind of things we were talking about uh, behind the scenes, and a lot of it was classified, which I was dealing with back then. 
Yeah, I had a chance to meet the Kirk Lippold, who was the captain of the coal. Um, met him down at a news bureau a couple of times. Those were interesting discussions about what went on. How long? Let's talk about Project Synergy from the, you know, as you start putting this together, because obviously there's lots of cases going on. But how long did this operation, this investigation take before you were able to make all of these arrests and do all these seizures? How much time did you guys have put in on this? I know that I, I think it, 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 in a year and a half, it was still going on when I left that assignment. But it kind of it kind of uh, we, we, we started we arrested some uh, Chinese chemists. Uh, we had we we'd had some operations in which they traveled outside of uh, China, and we were able to get our hands on a couple of Chinese chemists. So Did you get the same DOG guy, DOJ guy, to do the extradition? <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> no. So I can hear the phone call. Hey, I got another case for you. Get away from me. I work at Facebook now. Doesn't matter. <laughs> You're going to hear crickets on that line. So this thing had a lot of resonance uh, over a course of a year and a half, two years, because we were doing a lot of briefings and things such as that. Yeah, but how much attention did it get at the congressional level? I mean, because at some point you got to change laws, policies, or you got to do something, do more enforcement. Did it get the attention of any members of Congress to where they took action on it? I can't say that they took a specific action other than the administrations uh, start engaging with the Chinese both uh, 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 the administration at that particular time, I can't remember if it was Republican or Democrat or whatever, but they started engaging with the Chinese as far as uh, bringing to their attention that this stuff is killing people. Uh, I even went to China. I even went to China to the U.S. Embassy in Beijing and briefed uh, the staff and the ambassador on what was taking place within uh, China because the U.S. ambassador, they weren't aware of what was going on with this issue. It's amazing. It's just freaking amazing. Well, they, they don't care as long as look, we are they are killing Americans by our own hands yeah, with all of the fentanyl it's, it's and chemical warfare. It, it, hey, look, there is a book, and I've talked about it before. If you want to read it, it'll open your eyes. It's called Unrestricted Warfare. It's by two uh, Chinese officers of the PLA. You can find the genesis for how they do things over the internet or with uh, with fentanyl and everything else. They talk about their strategies behind doing stuff like this because as long as it's self-inflicted like American drug use is. Right. Absolutely. It's hard to start a war over that. Right. right. So yeah, so this was this was a this was a huge issue, and we briefed, we even briefed the deputy attorney G uh, general at the time. It was James Cole, and uh, his head was about to explode. He couldn't believe what we were telling him. Well, I do know that they did change some. Of the, uh, they they got China quote to cooperate. I think this is under the Trump administration to say, hey, look, we're going to outlaw sending fentanyl like directly, but. It still made it. It goes over the dark web. It goes over the internet. It goes to Mexico. It goes to Mexico. It's you know. I just saw another article here too. I, I say some stuff for research I'm doing, where there is increased money laundering by China for Mexican drug cartels. I mean, <laughs> how did? I mean, at what point? Where do we? How do we stop this? Let's talk about that for a second. How do you? I mean, you were you've been in the thick of this. If if you were HMFIC for a for a month and you could make the changes, Murph, that means you know head MF are in charge. I'm trying to clean. I got in trouble for using the F bomb a little bit. So HMFIC. That you is know what this means, term. right? I do know that, and that's okay. one of the words in there. Yes, <laughs> HM middle finger in charge. Yeah, H middle finger in charge. There yeah. you go. Um, what what would you do different? You have, you, to, you have to address these things as as, as being in our national security interests. So if if we had a situation where if we thought Al Qaeda was going to do something in the United States or blow somebody up or kill somebody, we would have a different uh, uh, footing on how we would deal with those issues. And so you need to put in all the tools and resources that you have available throughout the, our national security uh, command structure. And you have to use this stuff to try to disrupt what's going on. And so it needs to be at that level. And that's what that's kind of what I believe. Yeah, it's it's just like the, you know, back when they declared war on drugs. What a what a huge misnomer. Right. Well, yeah, because they sent two of you to Colombia in a war on drugs there, Murph. <laughs> exactly. And it's, it's just, and that's it. Our politicians have never taken, uh, including the Pentagon, have never taken it serious. Right. Um, it, you know, and, and I mean, not to get off topic here with, with Andre's conversation, but, you know, we've talked before about how, you know, pre-COVID, we spoke to the Senate uh, senior staffers at, on Capitol Hill, and then the next year, the House senior staffers, as well as some congressmen and congresswomen coming in and listening. And then went to the the uh, the same year went to the National Legislative American Legislative Exchange Conference, the ALEC conference that was being held, where where representatives from all fifty states are there for a week long conference. It was shocking that none of them knew counterfeit medications were coming into our country. 
shocking. And they would come up and openly express their shock that I've never heard it. I can't believe this has happened. I've never heard of this. Right. And that's why I was conducting a tremendous amount of briefings. I was briefing anybody and everybody about this specific threat. And they all, I briefed I briefed the Pentagon about this threat. I, I put some of this in my book that we were talking about later on. But uh, this this stuff was a huge national security threat. You, you bring up a good point. If I said, hey, we got a suitcase nuke and I got credible information, there's a suitcase. You Can you believe the amount of resources that would get thrown at that? Absolutely. You give me that same suitcase full of fentanyl and I will definitely kill more people with fentanyl than you would with that suitcase nuke. And everybody goes, oh, that's nice. That's interesting. To your point, I'm, I'm constantly amazed about how we're not able to – how they're not able to flip that switch and realize – Dude, this this is it's a slower death, but it's a death, but it's it's by our own hands. It's chemical warfare. It's uh, I think is I think is intentional, and uh, you know, yeah, that's just what I believe, and it's been going on for a long time. <sighs> yeah, very frustrating. Well, well, let's talk about something that was less frustrating. Uh, working in Jamaica, no. Um, let's talk about because <laughs> we wanted to finish up. We kind of set the stage, but you talked about two of the things you wanted to talk about in, in Africa that you did before we get into talking about your book. So let's talk about that. What is it? When did you do it? What's your sign? What's your major? I, I went two thousand and seventeen. I became a regional director for Africa, and uh, and the threat, you know, over the course of my career, this is so different. Tons of heroin now was flowing into East Africa on these dows of these old large fishing boats uh, on the Indian Ocean from the mockering coast of Iran and Pakistan. So the Taliban is taxing the freaking, the heroin that's coming, that's, that's, that's moving around out of Afghanistan and, and, and Pakistan. And, and here's the funny part. The Taliban, a lot of the other folks, they will kill you for drugs and stuff as long until it's funding terrorist activities. Then it's okay. Right, right. <laughs> So, and at the same time, we got that threat on, the, on in East Africa, and at the same time, we got tons of, of cocaine that was being smuggled on containers or, or, or large boats on the Atlantic Ocean going from South America to, uh, to Europe North, just off the West Coast of Africa. So, working with host country governments, we were able to seize, like, tons of both heroin and, and cocaine. And then one of the, the cases I wanted to quickly mention is uh, uh, some uh, notorious smugglers. They were na- they were called the, uh, uh, the Akashis, and they were from Pakistan, and they were based in Kenya. And working with two co-conspirators, uh, we eventually arrested them and extradited them to the uh, Southern District of New York. And they were operating in Kenya and smuggling tons of heroin also, and uh, some of the uh, product was was. was was going to be distributed in the United States. So we used uh, S- a special operations division in form, and I think we ended up getting a, like a ton of heroin uh, from the Akashis. And they were also involved in uh, uh, trafficking in tons of ivory and r- rhino horns and selling arms to Al-Shabaab, uh, a-, a terrorist organization operating in Somalia and Kenya. So once again, you see that, that, that transnational organized crime uh, nexus. This thing is just not one thing. These people were also involved in murder. So I, I just want to bring that uh, to your to you all's attention. And also, like in Africa, we had like the Lebanese Hezbollah, uh, and so the terrorist group does a lot of money laundering in West Africa. And so when I was the regional director, we arrested a guy in Morocco named Kasim Tajadin as he was transiting Morocco en route to. Guinea from Lebanon, and uh, he owned a lot of property in uh, in West Africa. And Tajuddin was a billionaire financier for Hezbollah, a billionaire, and he was wanted for uh, financial crimes in the Southern District of New York. And after we extradited him, he pled guilty. He received a five year sentence, and he turned over fifty million dollars to the United States government as part of his plea agreement. Uh, shortly after we arrested Tajuddin, his nephew was arrested in the Gambia with 50 kilograms of cocaine that verified to us the connection between drug trafficking in West Africa and the money laundering of uh, Hezbollah. This is a tangled web when you start getting into international terrorism and financing and stuff. I mean, um, when I was doing work down at the Department of Justice on information sharing, I've told this to a couple other folks, uh, but Andre too, I worked with some guys from ATF and they, one of the things that they were finding a lot of money being diverted on were counterfeit tax stamps on tobacco products. They would sell the product for the full price, but keep the money that would have been the tax, which by the way, I don't smoke, but for the folks that do, you know, <laughs> taxes are a big part of the cost of a single pack of cigarettes, tons, millions of dollars 
going flowing overseas. The, the the family I was talking about from Alabama, they were doing that also regarding that same thing. That was doing the spice. They were doing the exact same thing you're talking about. Holly criminal organizations, whatever they can make a buck in. Exactly. That's what it's all about. Exactly. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm just, you, you bang your head and you get up. You see, the, the thing is, after a while you go, now let me ask you this, Andre. When you had your final day and you walked out and you realized, I don't have to handle 180 cases at a time anymore, get woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning. Did you look back now and go, what the hell was I thinking? You know, what was, why, why did I do this job? I mean. No, I, I, I looked at it as uh, it was my honor to serve the, our, our government. And I think that uh, I think that people like me and Steve and yourself, we made uh, impact uh, in a whole lot of folks lives. And you can't you, you can't it's hard to put a number on it. Uh but we've saved a lot of lives. <laughs> I, I just, I, I'm, I'm convinced of that. Well, when you consider the amount of bath salts and other stuff you put, pulled off and everything else, I mean, how many lives alone could that have taken? Right. You know? Absolutely. You know, and, and it's, it's, <laughs> it's amazing you can even keep up. It's just overwhelming. It's whack-a-mole. Yeah. It really is. It really is. And, and I mean, we used to say this tongue-in-cheek, but we had the best job security in the world. Yeah, that was a lot different going into the private sector. You're going, hey, where's my work? I don't know. You got to go out and find it, Skippy. We had a joke at SAIC because mm-hmm. generals and admirals would retire and they'd go to work for these big defense contractors, but they're always late on their first day of work because they were waiting for their driver to show up. It's like, <laughs> sorry, Admiral, there are no drivers and <laughs> not in the private sector, buddy. Welcome to the real world. Welcome to the real world. <laughs> well, hey, let's talk about this because you punched out in 2022, right? 21. Mm-hmm. 21. All right. So you're not even two years out yet. So what made you, let, let's talk about that because I want to get into your book, uh, Truth and Terror, and let's talk about what you're doing now. But was it just time? Did you have enough years in, or were you hitting the mandatory retirement age? What was it? I I was actually extended a couple of years, so I I I, did, I I passed the mandatory age, and then I extended a couple of years. They thought that I was doing a decent job. I guess they wanted to keep me around, especially since uh, I was really kind of starting a new region, um, and so they kept me around for a couple extra years. Yeah, because normally yeah. mandatory retirement is fifty seven, right? Right, correct. As a matter of fact, he was going to bring uh, was going to bring Javier and I over to speak at a mini IDEC and my, mini um, international drug enforcement conference, and lovely COVID came along. Where's where that going to be at? Where were you going to speak at? I was going to be in Accra, Ghana. We had had a previous uh, conference in uh, the Zambia. Uh, oh, what a what a incredible venue! It was right on. Um, it was right on at Victoria Falls. My hotel room oh, wow. was a five minute walk to the falls. Wow! And so we had all kind of animals on the property, and even the African. We had more than thirty nations that attended our conference, and uh, even the African counterparts was like, oh, "I can't believe this venue because we had, it was giraffes, it was monkeys, it was everything uh, there was there was out there. It was it was really incredible. Wow! I. When I was doing stuff for the State Department, I was supposed to go to Kenya and some had a conflict. I had to go train somewhere else, and I wanted to go to Kenya, but it worked out for the best. Unfortunately, uh, one of the guys that I was teaching with, leaving the airport, heading to the reservation, they were actually going to be out on a game preserve uh, with this course. Car on the wrong side of the hill, hit the van head on, killed my buddy, injured a bunch of people in the van. And uh, I mean, it, it, but the, the pictures, they said, hey, here's where we're going. It was the Kenyan, the, the Rangers, the people out there preventing poaching and stuff. And it was like, what? A, I mean, the the countryside was beautiful, but it just wasn't meant to be um, mm-hmm. just one of those bad things. So let's talk about, you know, so you punched out. What did you do after you got out? Did you did you decide I'm just going to take it easy? Did you hop back into the private sector? What'd you do? I, I, I started writing a book, and I also I also started an LLC called Executive Worldwide Solutions. So I've done some part time work with with that as a consultant, but I, I really wanted to. Uh, uh, write a book, and some people didn't think I was going to do it. Uh, but well, you've I, written enough reports writing a book was, <laughs> after that long memo in Thailand, writing right. a book was easy, right? So I had all these experiences that I had kind of wanted to consolidate it, and that's why I kind of made it semi-autobiographical. I didn't want to have to jump through the hoops to try to get it approved, especially some of it being uh, possibly cl- classified and stuff like that. So uh, I just I just r- really wanted to do that, and uh, that was that was the main thing I did, and I wanted. To, and I wanted to tell a story what it was really like with our career uh, because and I've gotten great reviews on the book uh, and and I'm proud that I wrote it um, but the reason I wrote it was to kind of chronicle what a DEA agent 
does, and all you hear about is the failed war on drugs. Well, from from our perspective, our war is not a uh, it's not against a chemical or a, a drug product because people are always going to find a way to kind of get high, because and that ain't, that's not winnable. So the the true war is against the drug cartels and the, and, and transnational organized crime, and 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 from my pers- and and if, if that's what most folks thought about, they would see DEA in a better light. DEA has done a great job dismantling, as Steve knows, he was a participant in dismantling the Medellin and Cali cartels in Colombia. That's that's the real war. Because people, are, if dog crap could get people high, people are going to use that. You, you, you can never win against uh, people's quote, addictions. You know, yeah, exactly. Uh, so obviously we have to do more work in Mexico to go after some of those cartels. But I put my money on DEA, and that's kind of why I wrote the book. I wanted people to realize that this threat is just not going after the local street corner guy uh, in, in the communities. This is this is a, a global threat, and I wanted people to have that appreciation for it, and that's why I wrote it. And and, and you know that's exactly why I wrote it. Well, you know, and after after I read the book, Truth and Terror: A Drug Enforcement Story, that's you know I called Morgan and said, "Hey, we got another name for the list here because we we keep a list of potential uh, guests on the show." And uh, so I'm the reason I'm saying this is I'm endorsing your book 100. percent It was a, an excellent read. It's one of those books that's hard to put down. It's not. It's not an extensive read. You're not reading War and Peace, but it's exciting throughout. Well, let's talk about that book for a second. So how long did it take you to write it? It took me about seven, eight months to write it. And uh, when I started, it just kind of poured out of me. <laughs> you know, I used uh, I used the editor. So it was, it was a learning process uh, for me. Uh, but it really, it you really had to get rid of the cop speak too, because now yeah. you're writing a book, not a yes. report, yes. not a DEA. Oh my gosh. you just don't <laughs> know how, how you know, because uh, I, 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 you're absolutely right. That is a uh, that's a problem. Just like you're writing a, a law enforcement DEA report that you use, you want to use the same words simultaneously, subsequently, and all this crap, you know. Yeah. All that, all that legalese <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> Yeah. So now how did you go about, so let's talk about that too. So as as you're laying this out, some of it's a little bit fictionalized, but all all in all, um, how much does that represent your life? About 50%, 70%? A lot. It's like it might be eighty percent because you, even the stuff that we talked about in again in this podcast from my childhood, that stuff actually happened, and I put it in the book, and that's what we started this podcast talking about. And so, uh, yeah, what's not in the book is what we talked about before we talk, started the podcast, which we won't mention. But there's still some, even to this day, there's still some sensitivities over some of the stuff. Oh, some, if the oh, names absolutely. came out, it could cause some issues, right? Oh, absolutely, and uh, yeah, it could be very problematic uh, with some of the stuff that we were doing and uh yeah but not for you you're retired no, not for me not for me <laughs> be somebody yeah. else's headache some doj yeah. lawyer now yeah yeah oh uh, well so let's talk so when you got it who, who did your uh who published it for you i self-published and so that Congrats, yeah, man. yeah i self-published and uh that's why it's, a, it's, a, it's available on amazon i'm actually in the process of writing another book right now um uh, and i'm gonna i'm, I'm gonna go about that one differently. I'm going to seek a publisher. That first one was a learning process for me, but I, I've learned enough now that I'm actually not using the editor at this point, but it's taken me it's taken me longer to write it uh, because I'm reviewing and reviewing and reviewing. So it, it is a learning process. And then yesterday I was on a two, I had a two hour Zoom meeting with some folks to collaborate on a book about Africa and some of the threats there, so they want to work with me on on doing another book. So, actually, in a, in a couple of years, I might, if I'm fortunate, I might have three books that are out there that people can purchase. And you thought right. you'd retire and get away from all this paperwork, huh? Right, right. It's pretty. It's actually it's it's pretty it, it's pretty cool to put down on paper some of the things that you think about and that you want to express and that you you know that you know it's been, it's, it's something that I wanted to do. Years before I retired, and and people who knew my background and knew I had all this uh, all this vast experience in all these different countries, they say they would always say to me, "You need to write a book. You need to write a book." They didn't know that I always was thinking to myself, "I'm going to write a book." You know, it's funny because in DEA, the paperwork is is uh, <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> You know, and it's funny because when task force officers come over and join DEA, that's what they all have in common. It's like, I've never seen such paperwork. But there's a reason for it. 
And and the cool thing is, you become very good at writing. You know, and some some, some of us, us better. <laughs> yeah, some of us better than others because I tried writing our book and <laughs> what a bunch of crap. Yeah, Murph's, Murph's first version was saw Pablo got him killed. We went back uh, to the U.S. Yeah, it's like I saw I saw a meme for a canine last night on social media, and it's, it, he's doing his report and said saw bad guy bit same end of report. Yeah. <laughs> Short, sweet, to the point. So, um, hey, let's talk about real quick too about your LLC. What kind of gigs are you getting on your uh, your LLC? The type of work you're doing. Well, it's one. Th- these people sometimes are looking for contracts with the government, and so they need some of the intricacies of how to get certain things done. And and that's the type of stuff that I've done. And it, it hasn't been a lot, but it's just been it's just been a couple occasions. So they sign me to a, a, a non disclosure agreement and a and a contract, and I help them with some of the wording on what they need to. The the, the 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 government language. I'm going to speak. That's where your government language comes in handy, not yeah. in the book, but in doing contracts with the government yeah. and 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 helping them realize what resources are out there and you know how to how to make things happen. And so that's that's the type of work I've been doing. And it hasn't, it hasn't been a lot, but it it has been some. Been some interesting stuff. Well, and look, you're you're in a great place to do it too. I mean, um, this area of Northern Virginia, you can throw a rock and hit a hundred defense contractors, right, right. or you know, um, do stuff like that. Right. So, well, this is pretty cool. So let's, let's finish up with, um, um, like just real quickly too, you talked about your kids survived all of these moves and stuff. They did some international schools. What kind of work are they doing now? Well, my uh, oldest son, he's a special agent with uh, the state department for diplomatic security. Uh, and my uh, daughter, she's, uh, she's, she was a teacher. She's married a doctor living in Europe. And, oh, wow. uh, and my youngest son, he's, uh, uh, he's selling software in a Virginia area. And making more money than all of us. Not quite, he, but he's doing pretty well. He did a lot better graduating from college than I did. A lot better. <laughs> now, your oldest son, is he stationed overseas yet or is he still? Right there? now, he's domestically, but he's got his, uh, his, his, his early next year, he's moving to a foreign office. To a foreign office. I, I won't say at this particular time because he might kill me. Is it a free country or is it a communist country? It's a free country. Okay. Free country. Kind of yeah. Good. Now, uh, so. I did stuff. Well, I was part of DSS, but the anti-terrorism assistance program. So I was an outside advisor to them. But yeah, we were worked with a lot of the DSS guys. Uh, fans, yeah, you want to go to places like Pakistan? I can give you good places not to go. I, oh. I, I don't know the good places to go. Although the British embassy is about the only place you can get a decent beer in Islamabad. <laughs> the ones they tried to serve us in the American embassy, these Coronas that looked like about three years old and the limes were even older than that. Oh. It was so shriveled up. I'm going, is that, how long has that been around? I don't know. Do you want and it or bring, not? Yeah. And that brings up another question, Andre. When and the different countries you were in, were the Canadians, they have a Canadian embassy in those places? Uh, they, I think it was the Canadian High Commissions, I think, or something. Like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I can't remember if it was Embassy High Commissions, but yeah, I, I've, I've worked with a lot of those folks uh, around the world. Yeah. Did they have the bars in their in their offices like they did in Colombia? They had the best bar in Bogota. I don't remember that. Uh, I remember. I remember obviously going to quite a few diplomatic functions, but it wasn't with the. It wasn't with the uh, RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. It was specifically uh, when I went to those things. It was like at the 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 High Commissioner or the Ambassador. I think it was High Commissioners and stuff that we were invited to a lot of uh, diplomatic functions. And right. those are the kind of functions you have to stay sober. I mean, you're there. You're there working. You're not there socializing. As my friends at CIA do too, a lot of them go to these things. Do you ever drink? No. <laughs> they drank later, not during the. Hey, before you go though, we have to ask you a couple things. So, did you ever have to write a memo in the academy? <laughs> uh, not a lot. I, I, oh, I, wait I, a minute, not a lot. Okay. No, <laughs> I, I'm serious about that because I was like, man, I was really focused when I was there, man. You know, and uh, one of the things that I remember is like, uh, it was like. When I years later, when I got out of when I you know years later and decades later, now you know I was so focused and because I couldn't I couldn't afford to lose that I had to I had to make it I I given up my job nobody in my family ever had a job like this I had to make it and years later I was hearing about some of the, the my my, my uh, my classmates they were having a, a fair sexual rendezvous and stuff like that and I was like. I had no idea, and I, I, I it's like you know, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> hey, hey, was, did you have Kutsa in your class? Yeah, he was in my class. Yes, yeah, he's a, he's a hoot, man. Yeah, he is. He is. He, he's yeah. a guy that uh, you know. You guys were ahead of us by we. I think uh, we started in June. I think you guys had only been there a couple of weeks, maybe. 
Um, and and so you know during yeah, we class- started we yeah we started in we started in the beginning I because I, I went to process in with DA Chicago at the end of May and then it was two weeks after that that we started in, in BA fifty two. Yeah, so I think you guys had two weeks seniority on us. And so, you know, during classroom sessions, every hour you get a break and we'd all stand around the hallway and Kutsi used to come around and, and I, he really took being an upperclassman serious, you know. Uh, he was the oldest person in our class, too. Was he? He was the he oldest was person. I mean, he's a tough guy. And he, was, he was the, and he was voted the number one student in our class. And he was the oldest person. Tim oh, Kutsi. Yeah. That. Yeah. We, when we got to be friends later in our careers, but Tim would come over to our class and, and you know, they told you you couldn't lean up against the wall. You couldn't stand around with your hands in your pockets. Your pants had to be bloused inside your boots and all that. And he'd come over and try to tune us up you know, about our appearance or our hands in your pockets. It's like, dude, you're in the same boat we are here. You're nobody special. But later on in life, we got to be good friends. And, and Yeah, uh, he's, a, he's a great dude. He came from Fish and Wildlife. He spent a lot of his career in Quantico and as a, a, a firearms instructor. Yeah, he he called, and that's how we got to be friends because I I think I probably trained under him. But you know, he's out busting our chops, and it's like, go catch somebody that's, that doesn't have a fishing license. You know, go give, go do something important. Leave us alone. So, with all the countries you were in, Andre, there had to be a stupid criminal that still you think of, right? What was the stupidest thing you ran into in one of these countries? Oh man, in the U.S., this, the two two women they they tried to uh, we did a reverse undercover operation, and then they brought me like fifty thousand dollars two women to buy uh, cocaine from me, and then we arrested them, and they were really pissed. <laughs> <laughs> not, as, not as pissed as the deputies at Riverside that did a sixty kilo meth deal, and the guy had the sixty. Why they used real meth? 60 kilos of meth and they lost the guy. Oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah. You don't want to do that. No, no, that's that. That's borderline criminal behavior right there. Boy, it's one thing to lose dope, but to lose 50,000 in cash. Yeah. So these couple of these women, they brought me, cause I, I had this look like, like I said, earlier in my career, I'm wearing my Bill Cosby sweaters. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know if I can take you serious or not. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm America's dad. Look at me in my sweater. I put it in, I'm in a nice car. And here they come uh, with that money, man. I'm like, I'll take it. And I remember one of them fighting so bad. And I remember one of the agents rolling around on the ground with this big black female. And said, you know. She was probably kicking his ass, right? <laughs> she was. Lucky lucky the, uh, the, the, the troops were there to help him. Yeah. Oh, God. Well, that, that, there's no shortage of that kind of stuff. Well, hey, look, let's close out by doing this. Um, first of all, finish. The one thing we didn't close out on was your Marine Corps reserve career. What'd you do there? I was infantry. You know, I was just a grunt. Well, everybody's infantry in the Marine. No, but that was that was my military occupation. Was I was a grunt, and so that's what I did. And then I, I got a chance to go to Norway Arctic weather training, and I finished up what was called uh, they called it state platoon surveillance and target acquisition. So we were repelled, and they drop us behind enemy lines, and then you uh, you know use you, you call in our. And we would we we weren't I, I wasn't in actual war, so we would call in airstrikes as far as you know. So that's what I was. That's when I finished up my career in Marine Corps. It's called surveillance and start sta- and target acquisition state platoon in the Marine Corps. How many years did you have? I did. I did like five years and stuff yeah. like that. You know. So you know, I, I mean, uh, here and I mean, we're coming to the end of this interview here, and I, I just want to kind of recognize Andre because I mean, you're a true American success story here. You know, you came up in a challenging childhood in a very dangerous city where it would have been very easy to get affiliated with the wrong people. Uh, And you overcame all that. Uh, Your parents, whether they were, you know, it sounds like your mom was trying to be helpful and your dad was a challenge. But you went to college successfully. You, You know, you had a focus. And that's the cool thing about, in my opinion, and I'm not... I don't mean this to sound as I'm being braggadocious or anything, but it's that's one thing you see that makes DEA successful is our people have very strong work ethics. They have the ability to focus on a mission and they have the ability to adapt to the, the, the conditions around them, whether it's here in the United States or other countries, and be successful. And that's that's why I would, I would love to promote DEA more and more. It just seems like... Uh, well, you know what the FBI does better than the DEA? They get they more promote. TV shows. They get exactly. more TV shows, yeah. Exactly. Hey, but we, we would be huh. remiss. I was trying to lead to this earlier. We would be remiss. You ended up your career. 
you were a recipient of the Meritorious Presidential Rank Award signed by the President of the United States. How did that come about? Yeah, I mean, um, uh, I had I actually was told by the uh, deputy administrator uh, uh, a year or so before that they had put me in for it. But uh, because I retired when I did, I didn't. I, I didn't think I was going to get it. I just, I just thought, yeah, okay. And I was kind of brokenhearted by it because I felt like, oh boy, I thought that would be something really cool to have and really be a, 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 a the top, nice way to top my career off. And uh, the administrator and Milgram called me and told me I was the recipient of that award, and uh, that was that was pretty cool. And I was really proud of myself for that. And that, that and it goes to show you that uh, out of all that hard work that I did over the course of my career, it was it was appreciated, and that's what that's what made it so special. Uh, and it really made it special. And, and they they were been on pause. They hadn't had uh, they hadn't had given out those awards for a few years under the last administration. No one was getting those awards, so I was really happy. I didn't think I was going to get it. Fantastic. You, yeah, you know what? You earned it. You deserved it. And this is us saluting you there, Marine Infantry it. Grunt, DEA, acting, what were you, acting uh, regional director? In Bangkok, yeah. In Bangkok, yeah. Unpaid acting regional director. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, not at the, at, just not paid at the regional director level. Yeah. No, great stuff, man. Great stories. Love getting the backstory on this. And you guys, we'll put this on our website too. Uh, go to truthandterror.com. We'll put the book on there. It's available on Amazon. And you got to make sure when you get your next one out, you got to let us know. We'll put it up there on the website. We're, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, we're going to get you two sales. I promise you, we're going to send your book through the roof. Mercy, I want to <laughs> Here's the first we're one. 50% of the way there. No, we're going to get, pe- people love our book list. We've got probably, uh, we're going on this, uh, 96 episodes was released this week. Um, and we probably have, I mean, with the episodes that have books, we probably had at least have fifty episodes that have books, but some of them have multiple books. So, mm-hmm. well, you are you are an esteemed company, my friend. So well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so you. grateful and so appreciative of uh, you all giving me opportunity and uh, to tell some of these war stories and and to talk about my career. And it's always good to get with my man Steve Murphy, who uh, I love that guy to death for a long time, and so it's great to see him and stuff. Brother, it's been an honor having you on here, Andre. So thank yeah. you very much for taking the time. Absolutely. All right. You guys don't go anywhere. Everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. See, there we go. The hardest working man. He was the hardest working man at DEA. I tell you what, he worked a heck of a lot working with the special operations guys on Victor Boot. I mean, the stuff he had to do to pull together so that they could come in there, you know, and make this case work. You know, he may, and I love the way he told that story because he's not trying to take credit away from anybody, but man, what an eye opener. When you live in these countries and agents come, you know, to work in your area of responsibilities, it all lays on your shoulders. I mean, they don't even, they can't even get to the hotel from the airport without your assistance. So it's up to them, you know, as, as Andre explained to us, to figure out all the logistics, use all the contacts that they've developed in these different countries to make things successful. Um, So I'm I'm glad that, uh, you know, people love to, when I was in Miami, the guys in New York loved to come down in January and February. And it was pretty much the same thing. You know, you had to take care of these guys, but that's the right thing to do also. Yeah. So uh, just loved your story, Andre, and I can't tell you how much uh, appreciate your book. is fantastic. We highly encourage you to get the book. Truth and and Terror. Truth and Terror, a drug enforcement story by Andre Kellum. And you will find it at truthandterror.com. You will also find it on our book page list um, as we put it up there with all of the other ones. So, I mean, we got a ton of books on there. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was a good one, guys. We hope you enjoyed it because the, here's a man who very humble, came from very humble and tough beginnings, yeah. went to college in a taxi. That's how we got to college. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Great story. <laughs> oh, great story. But we hope you guys enjoyed that. If you did, head on over to Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars. Let us know what you think about it. I mean, we're, we're building some great stories here and it takes your help to help us get that story out there so other people can hear it. So head on over to Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars. Also head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for more information about the show and the book page. Get the link to Truth and Terror, a drug agent story. Make sure you download that. Make sure you buy it. Make sure you support Andre. Um, you know, we just love it when these guys come on with their books, guys and girls. And we consistently update it. Follow us on social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast. 
podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, Game of Crimes fans, just go there. Our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato, lets you into the inner sanctum. Also, Patreon. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have a ton of stuff. We've got as much or more content on Patreon as we do on our free podcast. And by the way, Murph, yes. we're going to be doing something. Oh, we We've had two requests. I'm announcing it. This is a world announcement. I'm going to figure out how to do it. It's going to take a little work. But we've actually had a lot of people say, hey, look, we'd like to listen to the podcast episodes, but without you know the ads and everything. Mm-hmm. Because we, you know, we, we create the file, then we upload it, then that's when the ads and everything get into it. So I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to start uploading episodes for our patrons. And now I have to figure it out, though, because, see, we have three levels. You know, we have our evil is coming. Mm -hmm. uh, We have uh, Guardian of the Realm and Warden of the Throne. And so I need to think through that with you a little bit because I think, uh, you know, we've got to make it worth it that when you're paying the extra money that you get the extra benefits. So there's a couple ways to do that, but we we definitely are going to do that. Just have to figure out how to do it, make it, uh, you know fair for the folks who are paying extra money. You know, how do we do that? But we'd like a lot of folks to get access to it. So I have a couple ideas we're going to work through, but just want to let you know, we've had it raised up, you know, several times now. So we're going to work on it. I love, I love that idea. And, you know, and, you know, we and I, back when we first started uh, Game of Crimes, we talked about how we do that. And here we are, you know, over a year and a half later, I guess it's time to do something, right? Nothing slow about us. But no, no, but you know, the other thing that too is you wait till people say, yeah, we want it now that, you know, hey, yeah. you know, we, we want to, it, it, it's a little extra work, uh, which is not the problem. The problem is making sure that there's people who want it. You know, why build something if nobody wants right. it? You know, it's not if you build it, will they come? It's, you know, they want us, they, they're saying, hey, we want to do this. So we're doing it. This, right. I was about to say this buds for you, but we ain't going there though. So <laughs> this podcast is for you. That doesn't mean the same thing as it used to. <laughs> doesn't mean the same thing. Well, hey guys, we hope you enjoyed it. And once again, we thank you guys for supporting us. We thank you guys for uh, doing that. Um, you know, sharing this, these episodes, giving us all the comments, the feedbacks. And we thank you guys once again for playing that biggest, baddest, most dangerous and laid back, which is not similar to James Brown kind of working hardest on the podcast, Game of Crimes. 